Well, there are many reasons why I'm thankful to be a citizen of the United States of America. Uh, I think there are many aspects of American culture that have shaped me in positive ways, but I also believe that there are some American predispositions that limit our thinking when it comes to spiritual things. And one of those is our predisposition to pragmatism. We practically worship whatever we consider to be practical. If we say something is practical, we mean that it's good because it works and is useful. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it becomes wrong when we become impatient with learning the knowledge, or in the church, doctrine, that lays the foundation for practical living. Which, and, and this predisposition, it can lead us to be very impatient or to even skip over sections of the Bible that tend to be more doctrinal and theological. The thinking goes something like this, don't give me doctrine, just tell me what to do. Tell me how to be a, a better, more efficient Christian. Tell me how to be a better husband, a better wife, a, a better parent. Tell me how to fix my relationships and overcome my anxiety. Uh, just tell me in simple, straightforward terms what to do. But God's Word takes a different approach. It does tell us what to do. It, told, it gets there. Uh, it tells us about how to live. But before it gets there, it begins by correcting and informing our thinking. And I say that because we're in the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesian church, and Paul spends the entire first half of this letter, chapters 1 through 3, just correcting and informing our thinking. It's, it's very doctrinal. Now, when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, I think you're going to find that Ephesians is one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. But before Paul gets to the practicality, he lays a solid foundation of doctrine and theology, theology upon which his wise counsel and direction for living stands. You see, Paul isn't just concerned that we do the right things. He wants us to do the right things for the right reasons, uh, understanding the way that God has created the world and the logic behind God's commands. And so, we're in a section right now, we're in chapter 2, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today, uh, we're in a section where Paul is laying that foundation, and I want to encourage you not to be impatient with his process uh, because, for this reason. For those of you who build things or you're really good mechanically, uh, you've, you understand this experience. It is really disappointing when you get to the end of a building project and you realize that everything you've built has been built on a faulty foundation. Uh, many of you have been over to our home, and you may have noticed that a lot of the furniture in our house is Ikea furniture. So if you're looking at a piece of furniture in our house and you're like, I wonder if that's from Ikea. It is. It's from Ikea. I have 26 of those little Allen wrenches in my toolbox because I don't throw them away. Uh, even They're all the same size, but I keep them anyway. And, uh, and, and here's what happened in… There's a story behind all this IKEA furniture. Even though I am not a mechanical person… Jim Bertle can tell you, I am not a mechanical person. I'm not gifted that way. Uh, even though that's the case, I do build… Uh, I've built most of the IKEA furniture in our home. And early on in our marriage, when we discovered IKEA, one of the excellent uh, suggestions Brooke made was that I put wood glue in the holes, especially with the, the, the wooden pieces, right? Uh, with the holes and the little, uh, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm not mechanical, I just proved it. Um, 
And she suggested I use wood glue just to make it a little bit more sturdy once you, once you get it together. And there's this story behind almost every piece of furniture uh, from Ikea in our home. And the story goes something like this. Almost every single piece of Ikea furniture in our house I've built twice. I've put it all the way together twice. And the reason why is because when I got done the first time, I realized there was a piece I had put in reversed or backward or upside down, and you can't just like flip it over and change the one piece. You have to deconstruct all of it to get back to the step you messed up and then rebuild it. Do you have any idea how miserable that is when you built it with wood glue? There's wood glue in all the holes and all the pegs. You're trying not to get the wood glue on the finish or on the floor. It's miserable. Now, now, when you construct something and you miss one of the early steps or you build on a faulty foundation, um, that can be very discouraging. It can be uh, very frustrating when it's a piece of IKEA furniture. But when you build your life on a faulty foundation, it's devastating. And so we need to be patient with the process of what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1 through 3. We're, we'll probably spend about another month uh, in this section, um, and we're going to spend it because we want to make sure we understand what Paul is saying about the true nature of who God is, who we are, and in this section, how being reconciled to God has reconciled us to God's people. So please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 2, uh, verse 19. Uh, basically, as I've preached through this, I've treated Ephesians 2 as if it had three main paragraphs, and there is a flow of thought that connects them that we have to, we have to notice in order to understand the passage that we come to today. In verses 1 through 10, Paul teaches us about our salvation that has come to us by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus, and he speaks about it in very personal terms. We were dead in our transgressions and sins with no hope of saving ourselves, but God did for us what we can't do for ourselves. Because of His great love, God graciously saved us from the penalty of our sins and has made us spiritually alive with Christ. But then when Paul moves into verse 11 of this chapter, in verses 11 through 18, he doesn't talk about our salvation in very personal, individual terms. He speaks of our salvation in communal terms. You see, God's plan of salvation not only included our individual salvation, it also involved bringing us into unity with the rest of God's people, regardless of their race or background. The good news is not just individual, it's also a communal gospel. It reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to God's people. And that's what verses 11 through 18 describe. Now, in verses 11 through 18, where Paul's emphasizing that we've been reconciled to God's people, what he explains is how we've been reconciled. We've been reconciled through the unique power of Christ to make peace for us with God and His people. Nobody, there's no other being in the cosmos that had the power to reconcile us to God and His people like Christ. Uh, also, we're reconciled to God by the unique reach of Christ. No matter how far away spiritually and metaphorically we've been in our rebellion, and no matter how far away geographically, ethnically we've been from God's people, Israel, no one is so far that they're beyond the reach of Jesus Christ to save them. 
And then there's a third thing that, uh, a third way that Jesus unites us. It's a very practical, functional way, and it's this, that we all share now in the same benefits of being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And so that's the emphasis. It's how did we become reconciled in those verses. But now when we move into verses 19 through 22, Paul is going to describe the practical results of having been reconciled to God. So, Christ's power has done this, but now what are the practical results of this reconciliation? And to help us understand the results, He's going to give us three illustrations, three illustrations that when taken together, they show us what it means to be reconciled to God's people. Let's read the passage together. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, and see if you can spot those images with me. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we focus now on Paul's words of amazing transformation from our status as strangers to fellow citizens and members of your house, please remind we who are Gentiles ethnically what a stunning privilege it is to have been made fellow heirs with the saved remnant of Israel, the true people of Messiah. We ask for this in His name. Amen. Notice at the beginning of verse 19, the words, so then. Uh, Paul is making a transition there, and he's saying, so then, based on this reconciliation uh, that we have through Christ, these are the results of our new union with God's people. And then uh, he gives this paragraph with three illustrations to communicate our benefits of being reconciled to God's people. The first image the Holy Spirit uses uh, through Paul to show us the results of our reconciliation with God's people is that of citizenship. So, we Gentiles who were once far off and excluded from God's chosen people, we have now become citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul is borrowing language here from the ancient empires and city-states of his own day, and he says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, there is a difference between uh, the, the Greek words that Paul uses here for strangers and aliens that helps open up for us what he means. The word stranger, uh, we could also bring across as foreigner. It just means someone who's from another country uh, that, that comes, let's say, to our country for a time, and they're a foreigner, they don't have any of the rights of citizenship, but maybe they're here as a tourist, or maybe they're here on a short business trip. But the word alien is used of a foreigner who is living in our country long term, indefinitely, permanently, Uh, Maybe they're here uh, on a green card or a work permit or a student visa. Maybe they're here and they are doing productive labor, but they're in the country illegally. That's the idea of the word alien. And for those who've experienced that, this is very powerful, uh, a powerful illustration, but I'm afraid that it's lost on most of us who are, we're comfortable Americans, we're not pining to immigrate to some other 
country. And so maybe an illustration that might work for us would be, if you've ever traveled alone internationally, uh, you know what this can feel like to be a foreigner. It can feel uh, lonely. Uh, you don't fit in. It can be disorienting to not know the language and not understand the signs. Uh, it can feel intimidating to think that if you get into any kind of legal trouble, uh, you have a precarious legal status. And Paul's point here is this. That's how we were amongst God's people before we came to Christ. Uh, we were foreigners. We were aliens. And even in very simple, straightforward terms, maybe before you came to Christ, one of your family members invited you to a Christmas Eve service at a church, and you even sang the carols because you know many, the words of many of the carols, but you were like a tourist. You were like a foreigner who didn't quite fit in among God's people. But now, by God's grace, you are part of God's true people. And he uses the word saints here. Now, I understand this word saints to mean all the true worshipers of God of all time. So that means those who were true worshipers of God before God's covenant with Abraham, like Noah, those who were God's people after God's covenant with Abraham, like Moses, for instance, and all those who were witnesses of the coming of the new covenant, like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, and all the heroes that we have in church history. Now, stop and think about what that means. Paul is not primarily saying that we've been brought close to God through Christ, although that's true, and he talked about that in the previous paragraph. What he's saying is that we've been brought into close relationship with all of God's people. We're fellow citizens with the saints of all time. There's now a fellowship, a spiritual kinship, a camaraderie between us and God's people. And I believe this is really important for us to hear because we live in such an individualistic culture. In our culture, a lot of the songs and movies and self-help books are all about the individual. But if we would take Paul's words seriously here and think about, about what they mean, it would add up to this. First and foremost, when you think about your identity, your identity, according to Ephesians, is that you're an adopted son or daughter of God through Christ, but following in close second with your identity is that you belong to God's people in an even greater way and an even more profound and deep way than you belong to your country and in an even deeper way than you belong to your biological family. You are now fellow citizens with righteous Noah. You are entitled to the same benefits as Abraham. You enjoy the same rights in the kingdom of God as King David and the Apostle John and St. Augustine. That's the reality. And if that's the new reality, which is a wonderful privilege, you do have to ask yourself, how important is participating with God's people in the context of a local church as displayed by your actions? Are you saying to yourself, man, we love the church. We are in church on Sunday. As long as our children aren't in a sports league, we're there. As long as there isn't some other activity we want to do, man, we're at church on Sunday. That's our first choice. As long as the weather isn't nice, and because we like to go camping when the weather's warm every weekend, we're there at church. Like, if, if you're saying that, uh, then I think that you need to stop, and I would just suggest that maybe you need to rethink your priorities. Because if you're not committed to the worship and service and building up of meaningful relationships in the church, you're actually moving away from part of your core identity as a new citizen in God's kingdom. You can control your schedule. Uh, if you've gotten into the bad habit, for instance, 
of staying up too late on Saturday night, and it makes getting up on Sunday morning, <coughs> excuse me, uh, if you stay up too late entertaining yourself to death on Saturday night, and it makes getting out of bed on Sunday morning a bear, it's a beast, and it's hard to get to church, well, then you need to learn the lesson that Sunday morning starts Saturday night by going to bed at a good hour. Uh, if you've made a lot of commitments with your time, maybe to a sports league that meets on Sundays, you need to rethink those commitments. It's not wrong to be in a sports league, but you might need to move that down to the bottom of your priority list. The first result of our reconciliation to God and His people is that we Gentiles, who were once far off and not part of God's covenant people, have now been made fellow citizens in the kingdom of God with all the saints of all time. The second result of our reconciliation to God and His people is that we're now part of God's family. Look again at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you become a member of a family? Well, there's only two ways. You're either born into the family or you're adopted. And back when we were in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we learned that in love, God the Father predestined us to adoption into His family through Christ. So, you're not just a citizen of heaven, which is a great privilege and shouldn't be taken for granted, but now there's also an intimate familial relationship that you have with God as your Father and His people as your brothers and sisters. You've been adopted into God's family. You are now His son or daughter. He is your true Father, but that's not all. The New Testament also talks about us being born spiritually into God's family. The New Testament in other places talks about us being in God's family, because, not because we were adopted, but because we were born. Let me give you an illustration of that. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, we read that God the Son came into the world, and when He came into the world, quote, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. This is what uh, Jesus talks about later on with Nicodemus. He calls it the new birth. Uh, for those of you who like theology, we also call it regeneration. Uh, regeneration and the new birth are the same thing. This is, regeneration is getting back to the Greek root, calling it the new birth, the second birth, spiritual birth. That's the, it's the same thing. And so, your reconciliation with God and His people has come both by being born into His family spiritually, <clears throat> excuse me, and also by being adopted. And then Paul's third illustration is that we are living stones in a temple being built for God. Now, he doesn't use the word living stones, I confess, in these verses. I'm bringing that over from the Apostle Peter, okay? Peter uses this exact same illustration, and in his illustration, he calls us living stones, so I'm bringing, I'm bringing that over. But I want to spend extra time on this illustration, and here's the reason why. Peter spends like three or four whole verses, three, uh, four verses, explaining this whole idea that we're stones in a temple being built to God. And to begin to understand the picture, the illustration he's giving us, I think we need to start with this truth. We need to remember that Paul was a son of the city. Remember, he was born in Tarsus, uh, and that's where he spent his early childhood years, um, his elementary years, if you will. They didn't 
call it that back then, but uh, he grew up there. And Tarsus at the time was the third largest city in the world behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. And then when he was a teenager, he moved to Jerusalem, which was the largest Jewish city in the world and had the amazing temple complex that um, Herod had built. Uh, He was in Rome when he wrote this letter to Ephesus, and six years previous to writing this letter, he had been in Ephesus, and Ephesus was one of the most magnificent cities uh, in Asia Minor and had this amazing temple to the goddess Diana that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And my point is this, Paul had seen all the best architecture that the ancient world had to offer when he gave us this illustration, and he says that uh, we are stones being built in a temple to God. Now, when the ancients built a temple, there was an essential unity to to the way that all the pieces of that temple fit together. Uh, When you think about the ancients building a temple, don't think about brick and mortar like we use. They used a completely different process. What they would do is this. They would quarry these massive, massive formations of marble or limestone, or in some cases, granite. And, and when I say large, uh, large portions of granite or limestone, I mean like the size of a boxcar, like really, really big pieces. Um, I'm excited to talk to Mark uh, because him and Gail have just gotten back from Israel, and I'm looking forward to talking with them. Some of the limestone blocks that are in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that you can go look at today, they are so large and so heavy, we can't move them with our cranes, with our technology. We, don't, we actually don't know how they got them in there. We know that they got them from a quarry to the north of the city of Jerusalem, but we don't know how they got them there. So when I say they, that they would quarry these stones, I mean large, massive blocks of stone. And what they would do is they would carefully, they would take months to shape these stones so that everything was at right angles, all the planes were perfectly flat, uh, and they were blocks that then they could fit together as they built, and they would be interconnected and, in, and interdependent. And a master builder would come along, he would look at all the blocks they had, and, and they were shaped basically the same size, but he was looking for which pieces were the most beautiful, most exquisite, because he wanted it to look good uh, on the outside. He wanted it to have curb appeal. And so what he would do is the master builder would choose where each block was going to go into that building, and then when they started laying those blocks, they put those blocks together often without anything joining them. So the only thing that was holding them together was the weight of their presence next to each other. So then you had this temple where all the stones were interconnected and interdependent. And the closest thing we have, because we, we just don't build buildings like this anymore, the closest thing we have is the game of Jenga, right? Again, you, you, you put all the blocks together, they're interconnected, interdependent, and the fun part of it is pulling blocks out to see how long the building can stand, right? And who pulls the last block out? Well, you have the same kind of picture in one of these ancient temples. If you could successfully remove some of the pieces of stone from various parts of the temple, if you removed enough of them, eventually it would fall because they were interconnected and interdependent stones in the temple. And uh, that's who we are. That's how Paul describes us here as interconnected, interdependent stones in a temple being built to God. But Paul also mentions a couple other materials that go into building a temple that are crucial to understand. The first 
is that a temple has to have a good foundation. And the temple he's talking about, this spiritual temple that is our relationships in the church, uh, the foundation of it is the apostles and prophets. Let's look again at verse 20. Uh, now to, excuse me, wrong thing. Uh, having, so we're, part of, we're citizens of God's saints, we're part of His household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple to the Lord. Uh, in the New Testament, there were some special individuals chosen by Christ Himself who had seen Him in His resurrected glory, whom He empowered to perform miracles and sent out especially to be His spokesmen, His ambassadors, and to spread the gospel in His name and also in their generation to help set in order the early church, and we refer to them as apostles. In both the Old and New Testament, there were prophets sent by God who gave two kinds of revelation, predictive revelation about the future and ethical revelation about God's moral will. And the foundation of this holy temple being built for God, that is the church, is the apostles and prophets. I believe that by talking about the apostles and prophets, it's just Paul's way, uh, it's, it's his shorthand for saying the revealed Word of God. And I think in particular, he's pointing us towards the New Testament. And what that means is this, at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that God has not been silent, but He has spoken through prophets and apostles, and we're trying to build this church on that foundation. We don't get to just build the church uh, and church life on whatever we think is pragmatic or whatever we think is prudent. The New Testament gives us instructions. For example, the early church met on Sunday for worship services, even though it was way more inconvenient for them than it is for us because Sunday was the day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. When they got together for worship services, they sang songs of worship together, and it was congregational singing, not a Christian concert. It was congregational singing together, singing praise to God. They gave offerings. They regularly practiced and observing the Lord's Supper together. <clears throat> they also had someone open up Scripture and read Scripture and explain it. And this entity, the, the local churches, were led by men who had good character, character that was above reproach, and who were able to teach, who were supposed to lead and shepherd the congregation. These men are variously called in the New Testament elders, overseers, pastors, and they were to give themselves to the study and teaching of God's Word and to prayer and to shepherding the flock. There were also deacons who helped serve the physical needs of the congregation. And my point is this, I could go further and further into ecclesiology here, but here's the point. The other elders and I are doing our best to build at Grace Fellowship based on uh, God's blueprint, on His plan. We're trying to square everything with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the priority for us as New Testament elders, but this doesn't just apply to us as elders. It applies to every member of this church in two ways. The first is this. You need to be aware of God's plan for the church as revealed in the New Testament so that you can help build it intelligently, so that you can encourage elders when they're doing the right thing 
and keep us accountable when you think that we need to answer some questions, right? That you need to know God's blueprint for the church. You need to understand the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But we could even apply this by way of analogy. I think we could apply this to our individual lives by saying that our individual lives need to be built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching. That's true for every Christian life. Every individual Christian who's following Jesus needs to build the foundation of their lives on the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And let me uh, illustrate for you why. In Psalm 1, the prophet warns us, the psalmist warns us, uh, and instructs us this way, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't think for a moment that wicked people and those who are unreconciled to God don't give counsel. They give counsel all the time. You live in a world of competing counsel. You live in a world where you're bombarded with counsel from philosophies and religions and therapeutic systems that runs contrary to the Word of God. And those other systems, let's be honest, that have better poetry, better music, and better art than the church will ever be able to produce, those systems are constantly encouraging you to build on other foundations. Now, there are a number of alternate foundations they are tempting you to build on, but let me just pick on one this morning for the purposes of this sermon. Uh, here it is. Here's the faulty foundation that they want you to build on instead of the foundation of the apostles. This life is all you get, so build accordingly. This life is all you get, so you need to get as much money and pleasure and power and fame as you can now because this life is all there is. And this foundation is so popular, we can even text it to each other now as an acronym. YOLO, you only live once. Do we believe that? Do we believe that you only live once? No, 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 no. As Christians, we believe that you live once, and then your ever-living, never-dying, eternal soul goes to be with the Lord when your body dies, and it either goes to be with the Lord in glory and in comfort, or it goes to be imprisoned in hell to await a final judgment. And before the final judgment, your soul will be raised. You will be resurrected from the dead, either to a resurrection of judgment or to a resurrection of glory with God in eternity future. We don't believe you only live once. You only live twice. And James Bond ruined that with, by making it one of their titles, but you live twice. And so, here's, here's the whole point. The whole point is this. This life is not the destination. This is a preparation for the destination. This life isn't the destination. This is a preparation for eternity. And so, it's the better part of wisdom and, and building on the foundation of the apostles' teaching to strategize about how you can best invest the one life you have to invest for the kingdom of God now? What is the best way with, with your particular gifting, with your, particularly, uh, your particular resources and experiences, what's the best way that you can invest your life for God's kingdom? That's, it's the better part of wisdom to find answers to that question and to pray for help finding answers to that question, but we're never going to get there if inadvertently we allow the counsel of the world to lead us astray from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets' teaching. So, the foundation for each of our individual lives, but more specifically in this passage, for the church and the way the church should be built is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. But there's one more element 
in this building that Paul highlights, and that is that the cornerstone of this temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in ancient times, when they built a temple, they would take this massive piece of marble or limestone, take months preparing it, every plane would be perfectly flat, everything would be perfectly square, and then they would take that stone and set it in place first before any other stones were in place. It would be the cornerstone, and every other stone that created the foundation would be fit perfectly. It would be trued and squared to fit perfectly with that cornerstone to create a solid foundation, and then based on that foundation, every other stone in the building would go in. Um, and to illustrate that Christ is the cornerstone, that's the most important stone in the building. It's the stone by which every other stone that's put in the building is trued and squared against. Uh, I've used this illustration before um, from the pulpit, actually a couple times in the last few years, but let me use it again because I think it works perfectly. This physical idea of the cornerstone has come into our language and our usage in street language in English. For instance, we'll speak of a player on an athletic team who's the cornerstone of the franchise. And to illustrate this, uh, a number of years ago, Brooke and I watched a documentary called The Last Dance. It was about the Chicago Bulls and the six NBA championships they won back in the 90s with Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was the cornerstone of that team. He was the best player in the league at the time and probably was, to this day, is the best player of all time. Now, in the middle of that championship run, if the Bulls had traded for another player and that player had come to the team and said, listen up, guys, I have my own way of playing the game, I have my own style, and I need the team to adjust to the way I play, right? I need Michael Jordan to adjust to the way I play the game. They would have laughed at him because you don't adjust. Uh, we're not going to adjust to the way you want to play. You adjust to Michael Jordan. He's the best player in the league. Well, you have the same thing going on here. Christ is the cornerstone. He doesn't adjust to fit you, you adjust to Him. You come to Him bowing the knee as Lord. We adjust to Him. God isn't going to redraw the architectural plan of His uh, uh, temple to fit the oblong eccentricities of your unredeemed flesh. He's not going to do that. He's going to shape you and craft you into uh, a perfect, perfectly rectangular block of limestone that fits into the spiritual house He's building according to His plan. And it's a spiritual building that as it's built, and when it is completely built, you'll notice, is not all about you. It, it's not focused in you. You blend into the background with the rest of the temple because the temple is dedicated to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe here's another way to illustrate it. When the ancients built a temple, the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid. You couldn't lay it later in the in the process. It had to be laid first so that then you could true every other stone to it to have a perfectly uh, square building. But what some people are tempted to do in our own day is to choose their own cornerstone and to build the palace of their own life based on a different cornerstone, but then shoe in the cornerstone of Jesus somewhere near the end of the building project and think that it will somehow sanctify this palace that they've built 
for themselves. But a cornerstone doesn't work that way. It doesn't work to try to fit a cornerstone into your building project in the middle of the building project, and it also won't work well as something ornamental at the end. You, you can't use a, a cornerstone to decorate with. It's not an accessory. And the point is, Jesus won't be an accessory in your life who offers you ancillary divine assistance whenever you ask for it. He will be the cornerstone or nothing else. That's the way that He works. He won't be anything else for you, which means now is a good time to stop and to say that here at Grace Fellowship Church, we want Jesus to be the cornerstone of our church, but we also want Him to be the cornerstone of our individual lives. But for that to happen, let's be honest, some of you, like my IKEA projects, you might have some, un, some painful unbuilding to do in order to correct what you're building and to truly, in a functional, practical way, make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. You might be thinking, well, I want what Jesus teaches about finances to be the cornerstone of our financial house, but we've made so many financial commitments, I don't know how we could ever fit in giving offerings or being generous. Well, my response to that would be, you might have to do some painful unbuilding of the financial commitments you've made if you're going to make Jesus the cornerstone of your finances. Others of you, uh, you might be aware right now that Jesus is calling you to make Him Lord of your schedule. And you look at your commitments and you say, man, we are so overcommitted right now. Maybe in a future year, we will make the church more of a priority. And again, I would say, uh, you are in control of your schedule. There may be a number of commitments you made that are not bad commitments. They're perfectly fine commitments, but when you add all of them up together, they take away from your ability to participate in what God is doing, and so you need to take some of those commitments and move them down to the bottom of the priority list if you're going to make Christ the Lord of your schedule. This is so important. Because by His power and because of His great love for us, Christ has reconciled us to God and God's people in such a way that we now get the privilege of being fellow citizens with the saints of all time. We have all been spiritually born again and adopted legally into God's family, and God is, as a master builder, carefully fitting us where He wants in this temple He's building in a way that connects us to each other in interconnected, interdependent uh, ways. But now, it's our part with the Spirit's help to do a better job of being productive citizens of the kingdom, obedient sons and daughters, and, and stones in His temple that adjust ourselves and true ourselves and fit ourselves into this temple that God is building. Let's pray.